Well, we all love stories. Uh, that's pretty much a certified fact. But more than loving good stories, uh, we love great stories even more. Uh, but loving stories is something that makes us uniquely human. Uh, we love stories because we are humans. And, and as long as there have been humans, there have been humans telling stories to other humans. Um, I think back in January, I was reading an article in, in The Guardian, I think it was, and there was an article about some recent cave paintings that were discovered in Indonesia. And experts date those cave paintings back 45 plus thousand years ago. And those cave paintings were just another way of telling stories. So we have been telling stories for a really, really long time. Uh, I, I was reading after someone recently in a matter that was unrelated to this, but the statement stuck out to me. And, and they talked about when you look back over the landscape of history, there have been great societies that did not use the will, but there has not been a single society that did not tell stories. Uh, because stories is one of the most fundamental, they're one of the most fundamental ways that we connect to each other. If you tell a story to someone, there's a connection that takes place. If somebody tells you a story, there, there's a connection that takes place. You know, somebody at work, you know, you get in a conversation, they tell you this story and it's like a connection happens. And stories are a way we connect with each other. It's our way of connecting with history. You know, we tell stories about the past so that it continues to live on in the present. It's our way of connecting to ideals, uh, to values, to common beliefs and emotions. Uh, stories are so important because they teach us, uh, they challenge us, uh, they can persuade us, they can change the way that we think about something, the way that we feel about something, and they inspire us. In, in other words, stories are powerful because they're so powerful they can take highly sophisticated ideals and complicated realities and they can condense them down to something that is both compelling and comprehensible. Uh, you can take something very scholarly and, and turn it into a story and a non-scholar can understand it. Uh, you can take someone who's highly cerebral and, and something that's incredibly complicated, but you attach a narrative to it and, and those of us who are not highly cerebral and, and not breaking the bank on IQ, we can understand it. Um, I, I love to read about this stuff and, and if you'll allow me the, the pleasure to geek out for just a moment. Uh, I, I read a lot of things and a lot of the things that I read about, I, I have no one to talk to about. I, I know that no one in my life cares about a lot of the things that I read about. But then when I feel like I don't have anybody to talk to, I remember you. And I'm like, oh, they're gonna be there Sunday. So let, let me just talk about this for just a moment because modern science, they've studied what happens when we hear stories. And through MRI imaging of the brain, this is fascinating because this is the way that God wired us. This is the way that God designed us. And this is how powerful stories are. If there was a storyteller up here in front of us today telling us a story, and there was an MRI of their brain and an MRI of all of our brains, our brain activity and our brain waves would begin to mirror the brain waves and the brain activity of the storyteller. So the storyteller's brain begins to be mirrored by our brain. Our brains literally sync together when we are listening to someone tell a story. And I mean, that is incredibly powerful because it changes the way that we think. It not only changes the way that we think, but your brain and my brain would begin to mirror their brain because stories move us in a common direction with common thought and common emotion. And so the conclusion is from, from experts who study this thing, that stories, they trigger a response, a significant response from the deepest parts of our humanity because stories are intended to help us 
understand the world around us and understand our place in the world. Uh, that's why we're doing this series called Old School because we're going back and we're looking at old stories because stories are powerful. And we're listening to these stories, hopefully so that our minds can get in sync with the intent of the original storytellers. So we're going back and we're talking about some of the most known stories from the Old Testament, stories that many of us were told in childhood in Sunday school. Uh, but yet they were told to us, you know, knowing that we were children, but we're gonna revisit and retell and reimagine these stories through the eyes and the ears and the perspective of now being adults. So today we're gonna go back and we're gonna go way back. We're actually going back all the way to the beginning. Because when it comes to stories, beginnings are important. Uh, beginnings, it's the part of the story that gives an audience a reason to keep reading or a reason to keep leading, uh, listening. It, it's the hook, it's the, it's the bait, it's what seduces us further into the story. Uh, it does this because maybe it introduces a character in the beginning that we wanna know more about. Uh, maybe it poses a question that makes us wanna keep reading in hopes of finding the answer, or there's a tension uh, in the beginning that we wanna see resolved. So it keeps us in the story, it keeps us listening, it keeps us reading. Uh, because I, I, I think, you know, I do quite a bit of writing and I do quite a bit of reading. I think that, you know, especially as a reader, beginnings are really important to me. I want it to be good from the very beginning. I was taught in school, you know, that the introduction trumps all, the introduction trumps all, that if your introduction doesn't capture people, it doesn't matter how good the rest of it is, people are gonna stop reading, people are gonna stop listening. Uh, Stephen King, uh, how many of y'all like to read Stephen King's books? Okay three of us. And uh, so maybe you like Stephen King's movies, but he, he talked about his writing one time and he talked about how he goes through the writing process. And, and he said that he has spent weeks and months and even years sometimes writing the beginning paragraph of one of his books because to get the first paragraph right was what he needed to do in order to open up the door for the rest of the book. So he would sometimes work on the beginning for a year because it took a really good beginning to open the door to the rest of the story. And that's what beginnings do. It prepares us for the rest of the story because it gives us a foundation to stand on. It gives us a context to work in. It gives us eyes to see with. It gives us ears to hear through. Uh, that's what beginnings do. And so today we're gonna go back to the story that preceded all stories in the Old Testament. We're gonna go back to the book of the beginnings or the book of Genesis. And that's simply what it means. The book of origins, the book of beginnings. Now, to make sure we're all on the same page and, and just because I don't wanna assume that you know something that maybe you don't or you've not thought about, the book of Genesis was written by Moses. Now, most scholars are pretty much in agreement with that, that, that Moses wrote Genesis, but not only did he write Genesis, but he wrote the other four books of the Pentateuch. Five, Penta, the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Torah, the books of law, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That those first five books were written by Moses. Now, when we open up the scripture, and hopefully we do, and we maybe decide that we're gonna read the book of Genesis and we're gonna, we're gonna read it and we're gonna try to figure out what it means. One of the best places for us to start whenever we're considering something, especially in the scripture is who wrote it? So Moses wrote it and then we need to think about, well, when did he write it and to whom did he write it and why did he write it to them? Because all of those questions help us begin to understand what the author actually meant to communicate because this is really important. And this is where some people can go really out into left field and beyond the fence with their theology. If what the writer of the scripture, if what he intended, if we get that wrong, then we've missed the point of the scripture. 
And something can't mean today what it didn't mean then. So if we want to understand what the point of a particular story or a particular book or a particular portion of scripture, if we want to understand what the point of it is today, we have to understand what the point of it was then because it can't mean today what it didn't mean then. So Moses writes the book of Genesis and he really writes the whole entire Pentateuch towards the end of his career. He writes it towards the end when the nation of Israel was getting ready to cross over into the land of Canaan. And all of that narrative is found towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy and into the book of Joshua. So Moses, towards the end of his career of leading Israel, before they get ready to cross over, he's going to give them a departing gift. Because the nation of Israel, they spent four centuries, 400 plus years in Egypt as slaves. They've been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're getting ready to cross over. So he wants to give them one last word. He wants to leave them with a story that they can hold on to. He wants to leave them with a narrative that, help, that will help lead them forward. So he gives to them a departing gift. Shortly before he dies, he sits down and he you know, pens the first five books, specifically Genesis. And the point is this. In Genesis, Moses is wanting to reintroduce Israel to the story of their past and the promise of their future. And so as he rides through Genesis, it's both instructive and corrective. Now keep in mind, they spent four centuries in Egypt, a, a pagan culture, a polytheistic culture. So they've got a lot of residue uh, that they're still carrying around. They've got a lot of residue from 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They've picked up some bad beliefs along the way. Uh, they've picked up some bad ways of thinking about mankind, some bad ways of thinking about themselves and their own behavior. So Moses is going to write this in both an instructive way and a corrective way. And he wants to impart to Israel a worldview that will shape their idea of God, their view of the world, mankind, and their place in it. So he's wanting to give them a worldview that helps them make sense of who God is, mankind, and their place in it all. And he's going to do this in a very interesting way. He's going to do this by telling them their history. And the history that he is really interested in telling them is the story of Abraham. And, and David talked about that last week uh, from Montreal. Abraham was the guy that God promised. Abraham, you're going to have a son. And that son is going to become a family. And that family is going to become a nation. And that nation is going to become a kingdom. And one day, one of your future descendants is going to be born. And the whole world's going to be blessed. And that seed is going to be the savior of the world. That seed is going to be the Messiah. That's the history that Moses wants to remind them of. And that history begins in Genesis 12. Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 is a prelude to Genesis 12 through the end of Deuteronomy. It's like the introduction. It's the pregame before the game. It's like it's just the warm-up act. But Genesis 1 through 11 is some of the most controversial literature within Christendom and, and really within the, the world uh, of literary works. Because so much in there, it provokes large questions. It, it provokes emotional questions. But Genesis 1 through 11 is really just the introduction so that he can tell them the story that he wants to tell them. He wants to reignite. When he writes this, they're getting ready to cross over. He's getting ready to die. He wants to reignite their faith in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. He wants to reacquaint them with their identity as the people of God and the responsibility that comes with being the people of God. So he begins with their history so that he can point them towards their future. And so Moses, I imagine that he sits down at some point and he picks up a pen, he picks up a stylus, he picks up something and he's getting ready to write this. He's in the Bronze Age. He's getting ready to, to put this down. 
And he's thinking about the best way to hook them in, to bait them, to seduce them, because beginnings are so important. He's wanting to tell them a story. And he's wanting their brains to sync with his brain so that they can all move in a common direction with common thought and common belief. And so he thinks on it. And then it comes to him. This is how he starts. He says, in the beginning, God. Four words that are pregnant with profundity. Four words that are so loaded. We could just talk about those four words for weeks. Here's Moses writing again in the Bronze Age of history. This long, white-haired guy that we have pictured all throughout our childhood that was obviously so intelligent, inspired by God as he writes these words. And with four words, with four words, there's so much going on here. With four words, he dismisses the accepted narrative of the day that they're living in. With four words, in the beginning, God, he slaps down. He kind of dismisses the narrative of the Egyptians and the Sumerians and the Canaanites and the Babylonians, which influence were all around Israel in those days. With one set of words, in the beginning, God. Because he dismisses the idea of a pantheon of gods. He says, in the beginning, God, singular. In the beginning, God, Elohim. In the beginning, there were no family of gods. There was no pantheon of gods. For those who care, you know, we, some people say for years that Genesis was borrowed from other Mesopotamian creation myths, but it's so different. And, and if you took any time at all to read those myths, to read those stories by other cultures, Genesis is so different. In the beginning, God, one singular God, in the beginning, God, and, and with one subtle, winsome stroke of the pen, he dismisses the pantheon of gods in Egypt, Osiris and Horus and Amun-Re. He dismisses the Babylonians and their pantheon of Marduk and Tiamat or the Canaanites with Ashdart and Ashereth and Bel. And he dismisses the idea of the day, the accepted predominant narrative of his day with four words, in the beginning, God. And this is what Moses is doing and this is absolutely brilliant. He's offering a counter narrative to the narratives of the culture of his day. And for us to understand what he's trying to get to, we need to understand that those were the narratives of his day. That the, that the narratives of the Sumerians, the Canaanites and the Babylonians, and the Egyptians, that, that was what people knew. But he is reintroducing a new narrative, a counter narrative. And this is why this is so important for the church in the 21st century. Because there's lots of narratives at play in our world today. And one of the best things that we can do as the church is not to protest, it's not to picket, it's not to stand up and scream, it's not to post something angry on social media, but one of the best things that we can learn to do, and we're going to talk a lot about this this fall, but one of the best things that we can learn to do is to learn how to winsomely articulate a counter-narrative to what our culture is talking about. A counter-narrative that is attractive, a counter-narrative that is rational, a counter-narrative that is compelling, that includes and invites people in. And so basically what Moses is doing is he is offering a catechism to Israel, a things, things that they need to know and things that they need to believe. And so he introduces them and reintroduces them to this idea of monotheism, not multiple gods, but there's one God. And then he goes on, he adds a few more words. He says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And once again, Moses, with a few additional words, he turns conventional thinking in his day upside down. All the other cultures of that time and time before that time, all other cultures, they looked up and they looked around 
and they found something in creation to worship. They looked up and they saw the moon and so they made a moon god. They looked up and they saw the sun and so they made a sun god. They looked around and they saw a river and they declared a river god. They saw a large rock and they declared it a god. They saw a tree and declared it god. They saw a fish or a frog or a snake and they declared it god. But Moses, Moses writing something that's so revolutionary for his time and even revolutionary when we really kind of chase it on down even to our day, that is so unique. He says, I am pointing you towards creation, not in order to worship it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to look up and I want you to look around, but I want you to know that there is a creator who is responsible for creation. I am not directing, directing you to worship creation. I am directing you to worship the God who exists outside of creation. I want you to look up and I want you to be in awe of the moon, but I want you to know that that is part of creation that a creator put there. I want you to look up and be amazed at the sun, but I want you to know that a creator put that sun in place. I want you to look around at nature and I want you to be amazed by it. I want you to be moved by it, but I want you to know that creation is simply pointing to a creator, a creator that exists outside of creation, a creator that exists outside of time and space and matter, a timeless, spaceless, immaterial God. I want you to see creation and be reminded that a creator put it all in place. I want you to see creation as a call to worship the creator. And so Moses, this is just incredible in just the, in just the first few words. I mean, this is amazing. And he's trying to make this point. Creation isn't God. Now you say, well, that's, who doesn't know that? No one knew it then. Creation isn't God. The creator of the creation is God. And this was, this was amazing. And really the point over that point that he was trying to make is there is one uncreated creator God. One uncreated creator God. A God that was not created, a God that is eternal, a God that exists outside of time, space, and matter, a God that has always been. Now, because I kind of feel like I have to, but also I really want to, I, I want you to know that when you open up to Genesis 1 and 2, it is not Moses trying to give us a scientific account of the origins of the universe. It wouldn't have even dawned on him to try to give us a scientific account of the origins of the universe. His audience wouldn't have even understood what he was trying to communicate if he was trying to give us a scientific accounting of the origin of the universe. Moses isn't concerned with how God created the world or when God created the world or how long it took him to create the world and what process he may or may have not used to create the world. What Moses is concerned about is the idea that God created the world. Now within Christianity, because this is important because churches fight about this thing, Christians fight about this thing, and some people make a lot of money in ministry belittling other people's viewpoints. They sell a lot of textbooks, they sell a lot of books, they open up museums, they do all this stuff, and they do it all the while of demeaning anybody else who believes differently. But there are scholars in both science and theological worlds that disagree about how to best interpret Genesis 1 and 2. Some people think it's six literal days. Some people believe that it took millions and billions of years. Some people believe that it just happened. Some people believe that it happened over time through a process that God was the architect and designer of. But here's what I teach my kids. Genesis, it gives lots of interesting questions that we can ask, but it's not concerned with how God did it or when God did it or how long God did it. 
It's simply concerned that, that we know that God did it, that God is responsible for creation. Now, in establishing this, he also gives us a rationality for God because he says in the beginning. He says, once upon a time, there was a beginning to everything in heaven and everything on earth. And so the logical conclusion of that thought is that everything that has a beginning has a cause. Not everything has a beginning and not everything has a cause, but everything that has a beginning has a cause. And because the heavens and earth have a beginning, then the heavens and the earth must have a cause. And Moses said, that first uncaused first cause is God. It's Elohim, that God is the one who created everything. And this is just food for thought. It took science to the 1950s and the 1960s to come to the conclusion that once upon a time, the universe had a beginning. People like Albert Einstein believed in the static theory of the universe, that the universe had always been. But it wasn't until the 1950s and the 1960s that we discovered background radiation and we discovered, oh, wait, the universe had a beginning. And Moses is like, I've been back here in the Bronze Age and I told you that a long time ago that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, that God is the uncaused first cause. Now, let me just tell you this too, because I believe the future of faith is really important. And so if you're a college student, if you're a high school student, if you're a middle school student, this is really important. There's nothing in Genesis one and two that is incompatible with science. Because in Genesis one and Genesis two, here's what you find. You find an earth that is younger than the universe, which is what science says. You find biological life that is younger than the earth, which is what science says. And you find human life that is younger than biological life, which is what science says. So you don't have to choose between science and the scripture. They're both something that you can believe in. You can trust in the observable sciences and you can also trust that the scriptures are the word of God. You don't have to give up science to believe in the scripture. So Moses, he goes on in all of this. He says, so God created mankind in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Now, there, there's a poetic structure to Genesis 1, and I'm not gonna bore you with it, but, but there's rhyme and there's rhythm and there's structure. And Genesis 1, to, to the people who know far more than I know, seem very, very confident that Genesis 1 is a poem. And Genesis 2, is more of, of a real, what we would call an accounting of things. But in Genesis one, God operates in this, this poetic structure that Moses lays forth and God creates you know, uh, a habitat and then he fills it with inhabitants. And that's kind of the, the, the model. There's a habitat created and then God fills it with inhabitants. But by the time we get to Genesis 1:27, the poem reaches its climax, its zenith because the zenith and the climax of God's creation, his good creation, was humanity. Humanity was the crown jewel of God's creation. And Moses said he created them, both of them, male and female. He created them different from one another, but equal in value with one another. They were biologically different. And that's where we would say as Christians that gender is something that is anchored in biology, not a social construct, that God created male and God created female and they look anatomically different and they function anatomically different, but yet they complement each other in a biological way, in a, a way that is also in a way that's relationally different than each other. But yet Moses's point is this, they both, male and female, bear the image of God equally. So they share equal dignity, that there is equality 
with men and women. Now, this is an idea. This idea right here that Moses wrote nearly 4,000 years ago, this is an idea that we're still chasing up to today. We're still trying to catch up with this revolutionary thought that men and women are equal, that they are both in the image of God. This is something that they're still gonna be trying to catch up to throughout the Old Testament. That's the reason you're gonna find men mistreating women and, and so on. They're still trying to catch up with this idea that they had introduced to them from the very beginning. But what Moses is saying is that every single person, every member of humanity is created in the image of God. And it is this verse right here that gives us the foundation for any rational thinking that says, equality is a virtue. Equality is something that we consider a virtue because every person is created equal. Every person bears the image of God. Every person has inherent value, not ascribed value. We don't ascribe value on people based on their skin color or their level of socioeconomic status or their education or what they believe or where they come from. We don't ascribe people value. People have inherent value because they bear the image of God. So no matter who they are or what they believe or where they come from, every single person in this world on this planet, they are created in the image of God. Your skin color or not your skin color, your worldview or not your worldview, your politics or not your politics, that's not your enemy. That's not your adversary. That's not the person you've been called to war against. That is a person created in the image of God and they are equal value as you are. You say, where does that idea come from? Not from the framers of the United States Constitution. That idea comes from Genesis one and two because Moses' point was this, all people are sacred. Let's all just say that out loud. All people are sacred. Every single one of them, and, and just FYI so that you know this, only Genesis and the Christian worldview provides a rational, logical foundation for ideals like justice and equality. In a world where God doesn't exist, in an atheistic idea of the world, in a naturalistic idea of where we all came from, that once upon a time, somehow something came out of nothing and we don't understand it, but we know that just a trillionth of a second afterward, there were the laws of physics and chemistry and boom, here we are, cosmic accidents in a universe that didn't plan us, in a universe that doesn't care about us, in a universe that offers us no meaning, no purpose, no value, no hope, no love. In a world where God doesn't exist, there is no rational foundation for justice. It's just your idea of justice or my idea of justice and your idea of right or wrong. In a world where God doesn't exist, there is no such thing as absolute right or wrong. There is no such thing as absolute truth. In a world where there is no God, you're an accident. You have no purpose, you have no meaning. The person beside of you, your children, your son, your daughter, your wife, your husband, your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, they have no inherent value as a human being in a world where God doesn't exist. There's no rational thought for believing that in a world where God doesn't exist. In a world that's ruled by biology and chemistry, we mean nothing. And everything around us means nothing. This is why Genesis 1 is a compelling narrative. To tell our culture, there is a reason why you value equality. 
There is a reason why you value justice. There is a reason why you value the things that you value. And the reason that you value it is because of the truth that is introduced to us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Moses goes on, he says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east. Now we're getting somewhere. I knew I was in trouble this week because I had so much to say and I was like, they only give me so much time, but I, I'm, I'm, I promise I'm sprinting towards the finish line. You can't see me right now, but I'm sprinting. So just take a breath. Now the Lord God had planted in the garden in the east in Eden and there he put the man that he had formed. Now the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. But in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's like, okay, Moses is telling this story and everybody's listening and everybody's reading. And it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Now, I have to point this out every time I see this verse because I have it written in my Bible. The very first words of God to humanity were, you are free. Those were God's first words, you are free. Now, depending on how you grew up and the faith or the tradition or the church, or lots of us grew up with this idea that God was not a God who really valued freedom for us. It was more restrictive. Uh, it seemed like God had a rule for everything. And when in doubt, you know, if it seemed like it was gonna be fun, more or less, God was probably again it. God, God was just not for it. God, God was not for fun. If it involved music, if it involved friends, if it was after dark on Friday or Saturday, don't care what it is, it's wrong. It's just God's against it. No fun, no enjoyment, no pleasure. God's against all of those things. Because growing up, it was almost like the message was be happy or be holy. Because whoever met a person that was holy and happy, not where I came from, the holiest among us, whoo, Lord Jesus. They were saying a no to a lot of things. But it was like, we didn't have a concept for this, but God's first words were, you are free. God says, I am for your freedom. I am for your enjoyment. I do, I've created things for your pleasure. I've created things that will bring you excitement, fulfillment and satisfaction. I've given you an entire garden for your enjoyment. You are free. <laughs> But, there is a but, there's always a but, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, you know this. He says, you're free to eat from all the other trees, save one tree. Now, Genesis one and two, I was talking to some of our uh, staff and volunteers before the first service. Genesis one and two haunted me for a period in my life, just for different reasons. and. And one of the things that I was just always just, I was just like, man, this rubs me the wrong way. Why didn't he just give them a why? He says, here's all these trees, but this one tree, don't eat from it. But no explanation other than if you do, you're gonna die. Well, that's a consequence, that's not an explanation. This is the thing that irritated us about our parents when we were younger. And our parents would say, no, you can't do that, why? Well, you just can't do that, well, why? Well, you just can't do that, because I said so, but why? Well, because I know best, but why? And it's like, just tell me why. And we get frustrated. And, and, and sometimes there's a tendency to read this to say, well, why doesn't God just tell them why? Why doesn't he give them an explanation? Why doesn't he help them understand why he tells them not to do this? Well, the easy answer is because God wants them to trust and obey. 
But here's the even more uncomfortable truth. God didn't owe them an explanation. And God doesn't owe me an explanation. And God doesn't owe you an explanation about why he has said some of the things that he has said about some things. You may not like it. I may not understand it. But he doesn't owe me an explanation. There is no version of our faith that says our obedience is contingent upon God's explanation and whether we like it or not. So God doesn't tell them why and he doesn't have to. And I gotta be okay with that because you know what? He's God and I looked in the mirror this morning and I was reminded once again, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> now, there's an inevitable question, at least I think when we read this question and, it, and it's this why question. Why does God make a tree forbidden? But beyond that, why doesn't God just make all trees legal? God can do what he wants to do. God could have made every single tree in Eden a-okay in play, but God doesn't. He makes all the trees in play except for one. Why does God do that? Is God giving them an opportunity to fail? Is God setting them up to fail? Is, that what's is, this, is this a case of divine entrapment? Hey, here's this big garden, it's awesome, it's great. But there's one right here you can't touch. Is, is God setting them up to fail? Why does he do this? Why even give them the choice? Why is that necessary? Is he setting them up to fail? I don't think that he is. Because actually, in my view, I think if you take it straightforward, he's setting them up to succeed. I mean, if you're playing the odds, the odds are in their favor. Everything's in play except for one thing. So God sets them up to succeed. God doesn't set them up to fail. Imagine, imagine. Imagine if we took you out to this huge car lot, there's 800 cars out there, they're all brand new, and we told you, hey, you can drive off any of these cars that you want, except that one out there in the middle. And if you get in that car and try to drive off, you will surely die. <laughs> or let's take it a little bit back. Or if you try to take that car, you're gonna lose the opportunity for anything else. Now, I would like to think our odds are pretty good. I like to think that's not too bad of a setup. That feels like we're set up to succeed, not fail. Well, that's kind of how it was then. But you say, well, why did he give them the choice to begin with? Because it's foundational, it's required. If Adam and Eve had a relationship with God and God had a relationship with Adam and Eve, a relationship requires choice. For a relationship to exist, there has to be the choice for either person to walk away or for either person to stay. Because to have a relationship where one person doesn't have the choice to walk away, we call that slavery. Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're in paradise. But if you don't have the choice philosophically to be able to leave paradise, paradise is nothing more than a dressed up prison. If God wanted to be loved by Adam and Eve, God was required to give them a choice because love requires a choice. You have to be able to choose against love in order to choose for love. So love required a choice. And here's something else to think about. In a world of free choice, not even God gets everything that he wants. In a world where free choice is a real thing, only God's protection can go so far. God will give us over to our choices. He will allow us to get run over by the consequence of our choices. So wherever there is love, there also has to be this possibility for evil. Say, so, well, who created evil? 
Well, the very opportunity for choice makes the possibility for evil because if there is a possibility to choose or not choose love, to not choose love is to choose evil because evil is the absence of love and goodness. So the very responsibility that God put upon his creation was this personal responsibility that they would get to choose because their relationship with God required it, love required it. So it was philosophically required that God would give them a choice. If you need a New Testament, God, Jesus told the story about the prodigal son and the prodigal son decided to leave home and what did the father allow the son to do? Leave home. Because to make the son stay, that's not a relationship. To make the son stay, that's not a win. That's not love. So God had to give us the choice. He had to give us the responsibility for the choices that we would or wouldn't make. Moses goes on. He says, now, and I promise, we're getting there. Now the serpent was more crafty. And it's like, where in the world did this serpent come from? It's like the serpent shows up and I got a question. He disappears as quickly as he shows up. Moses doesn't write about him again. Say, why? I don't know. He doesn't show up in any of the other books of the Old Testament. Say, why? I don't know. But now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say that you must not eat from any tree of the garden? And that's how the voice of temptation always works. The voice of temptation always gets us to question God's goodness. Does God really have your best interest in mind, Adam? Does God really have your best interest in mind, Eve? Can you really trust him with this, don't eat from this tree? Did God really say that? Is that what God really meant? Maybe you heard it wrong, maybe you got it wrong. Because if we distrust God's heart, it's only a matter of time before we disobey God's words. The moment that you begin to question whether or not God has your best interest in mind, you're already moving in a dangerous direction. The serpent's saying to Eve, hey, you got the right to dis distrust. You got the right to doubt. You got the right to disobey. Eve, this is really, this is your life. So come on, you, you make the choice. It's your life. You get to live your own life. So how do you feel about it, Eve? Would you have put this off limits if you were God? And if you don't like what God said, Eve, it's probably not what he meant. So go for it. Go for it. God wouldn't keep you from something so good. God wouldn't keep you some, from something that seems so right, that, that looks so beautiful. God, God wouldn't keep you from it if he cared about you. I mean, who would do that? Eve. Come on, this is as simple as changing your beliefs. Because when you don't like how you have to behave because of what you believe, just change your beliefs so you can behave the way you wanna behave. This is really quite easy. Change your beliefs. Find someone online, read a book, find a sermon, get a podcast, find a friend, and find somebody who agrees with you, who gives you license, who gives you freedom, who gives you a rationale, who gives you an excuse to do what you wanna do. Find a belief that will accommodate your behavior. Say things like this, I don't understand why that's wrong. I don't understand why it has to be wrong. I, I don't think anybody's being hurt by it. Well, it may have been true way back then, but I don't think it's true today, or it may have been true for them, but it's not true for me. You know, just say things like that because it really helps you feel better about what you wanna do. That's true for them. Oh, Eve, listen, find a theology, find a church. Find, find a theology that's gonna let you live the way you wanna live. A theology that, you know, 
makes God your pet, but not your master. I mean, who wants to totally do away with him? But let's keep him on the leash. And let's pet him when it's convenient. But let's certainly not let him be the master. This is your life. Let's live it. 3,500 plus years, Bronze Age, as relevant as today, because that's where our world is. If you don't like it, just make something else up. Change your belief. Find a reason, find a rationale. Develop a whole system of believing and thinking that allows you to live your life the way you wanna live it. And then demand that everybody else applauds it and approves it. That may be where some of you are where some of us are, and we're standing in front of a tree. And God said, that's not your tree. And you're looking for a way to eat from it. You're grasping at straws, you're looking for a reason, you're reading, you're trying to change, you're trying to make up beliefs, you're trying to make up ideas, and what you don't know you just make up as you go along because you need a reason so you don't feel so bad about it. You, you, need, you need justification where you can defend it and you're looking for an out. And that's what Adam and Eve are looking for. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. God didn't say that or you will die. And the serpent said, you will not surely die. You will not certainly die. The oldest lie in history There'll be no consequences for your choices. So go ahead, do what you want. Because the moment we believe there's no consequences for our choices, the moment that we think that we can get away with our personal irresponsibility and that nobody's gonna get hurt, they're not gonna get hurt, I'm not gonna get hurt, nobody's gonna get hurt. All the way through the narrative, we begin to understand that the idea of sin, it, it kills things. It kills relationships, it kills dreams, it kills families, it kills things. And the serpent goes on and said, for God knows, God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Eve, you won't need God anymore. You do this, you don't need him anymore. You get to be your own God. You get to call the shots. You get to decide what's right and what's wrong for you. Eve, that's freedom. That's autonomy. To be able to decide what's good and what's wrong for you. Listen, this idea of God, this concept of God, it's holding you back. It's keeping you from being happy. It's keeping you from being fulfilled. It's keeping you from being satisfied. So just let him go. Imagine the possibility of not having this God thing over your shoulder. Imagine a life where you can do what you want to do free from guilt or shame or regret. Imagine. And it says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it as well. And just a side note, because somebody may need to hear this. When you fixate on what is forbidden, you can't focus on what is good. The only thing that they could think about was what was forbidden right in front of them, but they didn't have to keep looking at it. There was a whole garden to enjoy. You see, in this text, 
the serpent is not the worst enemy. There's no such thing as the devil made me do it. There's no such thing as I got suckered. The worst enemy in this story is not the serpent. Adam and Eve's worst enemy, you know who it was? Adam and Eve. We are our own worst enemy. And when they decided to take the fruit, that was the moment that everything went off the rails. And Moses said, look around Israel. If you wanna know why there's injustice in the world, if you wanna know why there's pain and war in the world and abuse in the world, if you wanna know why the world is the way it is, because in that moment, sin, sorrow, and death entered in. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. And they ran away and they heard God moving about in the garden. It says, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. And God, he says, Adam, where art thou? And Adam answered and said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And we have been running from God as a rebel race ever since. They run away, but God comes after them. And I've told you this before, not to pay them back, but to win them back. God met them in their worst moment. In all of the shame, in all of the guilt, in all of the disgrace, it was their fault. This is what they chose. Yeah, we could say, oh, that's their bed. They ought to just sit there and lie in it. But not our creator, not our heavenly father. He comes to them in the moment of their guilt and their shame and their regret. And he meets them there because our mess is the place where God loves to meet us. I have discovered in my life that some of the most profound experiences that I've ever had with God is when God met me in the mess. In the moment of my biggest regret, in the moment where it was my fault and I did it and there was nobody to blame, I willfully disobeyed, I knew better. But yet, when I went hiding from him, didn't feel like talking to him, didn't feel like showing up on a Sunday, didn't even wanna hear a sermon, didn't even wanna think about it because He met me in my mess. And I guarantee you, he has met you in yours as well. Adam and Eve leave Eden because there's consequences. They leave with the clothes on their back because God offers a sacrifice, takes the skins, clothes them, and they leave with the clothes on their back and a promise in their heart. Because God said, Adam, everything that you gave away here in the garden, everything that you walked away from, everything that you lost. One day, there's gonna be a child, a son that's born to the seed of a woman and that seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent in a way that utterly casts it down. And they left with that promise that one day a hero would come a savior, a son, 
who would win back everything that Adam lost. And they walked out of Eden and the rest of the scripture is the story of God making his way back to me and to you. The story of God doing whatever it takes to win his family back. Because in Genesis, we find that God created a people who were free enough to walk away, but loved enough to be rescued. And it's just not their story. It's our story. And the New Testament opens up and the apostle Paul looked at it this way. He said, what we lost in the first Adam, the blessing that we lost, the life that we lost, the peace that we lost. There is a second Adam who stepped on the pages of history, the seed of a woman. And everything that Adam cost us, the second Adam, he bought back for us. The tree of life that Adam and Eve lost access to in the garden, the second Adam, would die on a tree that would become a tree of life for all who would believe that he died for their sins and was buried and raised from the dead. And one day, because of that sacrifice, all of the cosmos would be reordered and heaven and earth would come together once again and everything would be remade to even a greater glory than what it was in the beginning because of this second Adam, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's the story we get from the very beginning. Heavenly Father, I stand in awe of this story that you have written I stand in awe of the words of Moses, the story that it tells, the relevance that it has, and the hope that it gives us, that you run after us, you meet us in the mess. God, I know that if there was somewhere that Shepherd and Grayson left to and they ran away, I cannot imagine that there's a corner of this globe that I would not claw, I would not crawl, I would not do whatever I would have to do to get to where they are. And God, that's how you think of us. That's how you feel about us. We may run away, but you always come after us. Let us not reject that kind of love, that kind of grace. Heavenly Father, you are a good father. And you say to us today that you love us no matter what. I pray that becomes real to us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, let's stand together and let's sing it.